Good morning, everyone. Man, we've had, I can probably just read these verses and say, God bless you. And we had a great day, have we not? My thanks to Zach and team for leading us in worship and song. And of course, we celebrated that wonderful symbol of baptism. And now let's worship in the Word, shall we? We're continuing in our series of 1 Corinthians. And our particular passage today we'll find in the second chapter, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing five years after he first visited Corinth. He's in Ephesus, which is in the western side of Turkey, writing to this church which was across the Aegean, thinking about a church that he loved. He'd received some news from that church, some of it not good. Imagine that. Eight o'clock didn't get that. That was my joke one. That's joke one. Right there. Imagine there being problems in church, right? But he's thinking in fondness of this church, and he writes them these words. And look at it with me in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Here's the words of Paul. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you today for your timeless, God-breathed word. We ask that you bless the reading, the hearing, the study, the teaching, the application of your word. May it cut between our soul and our spirits and pour into us today your truth, your wisdom, the secret wisdom that was hidden throughout the ages until Christ came. And bring about instruction in our soul, reproof, correction, healing, comfort, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Paul's writing to the church there and I can't help but think, when, as he said in verse 1, when I came to you, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He had tried that. He had just left Athens, short trip about 80 miles. And maybe some of you remember what happened in Athens while he was there. It's in Acts 17. He addressed the philosophers, the, the men, intellectuals of the day, and what we call the Mars Hill unknown God's sermon. It's brilliant in its content. But my observations of that sermon, that short sermon, are these. Nowhere does he mention the name of Jesus. And nowhere does he mention the gospel. And so as he, after he preaches that sermon in Athens, it's a lukewarm response. In fact, they respond to him 
by saying, who is this babbler? <laughs> Scrap-picked education for references, it'd be like, well, we went to UT and you went to Austin Community College. That's joke too. <laughs> I'm bombing today right there, right away. But we know more than you. We, we're smarter than you. You're speaking nonsense. So he leaves there. He travels this short distance. And as he's reminiscing from Ephesus and writing to them, he says, I didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. Look at verse 2. He says, for I decided. It's, it's an act of his will, of his human responsibility. He's saying, I'm going to change my course. I'm going to change direction. Have you ever needed to change course in your life? That's what he's doing here. I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As we've learned in the past few weeks, as our pastor have taught us, that could be a, a decision fraught with issues. For example, the cross of Christ to the Jew was scandal. Why? Well, their idea of a Messiah wasn't Jesus. <laughs> they wanted a leader who would come and deliver them from Roman oppression and rule and be a military conqueror. And by the way, that's coming. <laughs> when Jesus comes back, beloved, it won't be as a suffering servant. It'll be as the glorious king. But this time, he came to suffer and to die. And so to the Jew, it's scandal for their Messiah to die this way for the Greek. The people he was talking to in Athens, it's foolishness. What? Foolishness is a Greek word that we translate moron. So if you believe that, you're a moron. Does that relate to our culture today? Those that could believe that the Messiah would be crucified? You see, the Greeks valued wisdom more than anything else. But Paul goes on to explain in the rest of this chapter, and I don't have time today to unpack it with you, but he begins to explain in the rest of the chapter that the wisdom of men is doomed to fail. It will pass away. But Paul says there's a secret wisdom that was known only to God. And that secret wisdom, when the fullness of time came, when he wrote to the churches in Galatia, was Christ being revealed. All of creation groaned for that moment. And that secret wisdom is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the cross. Foolishness to man. Scandal to the Jew. But to those who know God, it's been revealed by the Spirit. It's the wisdom. The secret wisdom. So, Paul decides to focus on nothing but the cross. Why? Well, it's in verse 5. It's that so your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's why we're here today. We don't want your faith to rest in any kind of man's wisdom. We want your faith to rest in the wisdom of God. And because of Paul's decision, his ministry shifts. No longer is he an itinerant preacher as he had been before and church planner. He becomes the pastor of this church at Corinth. He stays there for two years. That was unusual for him. That was new. 
And notably, he begins to write letters to the church. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? And beloved church, frankly, for this pastor, in this pulpit, on this day, as the title of this sermon indicates, nothing but the cross, it's my focus as well. Nothing in my pulpit ministry up to this day has compared. So today, let's survey the cross, shall we? Let's take a survey means to take a comprehensive, uh, purposeful, focused look with intentionality. Let's analyze, let's ponder, carefully think about the cross today so that we understand it more fully. So I want to invite you through the lens of Scripture to do that with me, shall we? Here's the first note if you're a note taker. And here's what the Bible teaches us about the cross. It's when we survey it, we see that first, Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a contingency. It wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the very beginning. And one of the places that we see this is in the earliest preaching of the church. It's in the book of Acts when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Look at it with me. It's found in chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Peter's saying, look, you know Jesus. You saw these mighty works and wonders and signs. But verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up, and here it is. Here's the plan A. Delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in other words, Peter's saying this. This Jesus that you know, who was crucified just a few days ago here in Jerusalem, that was part of what God determined in advance would happen. It was part of His definite plan. It was what He foreknew. It's what He intended it was God's will. And I want you to see that it's not only taught in the New Testament, but it's in the Old Testament as well. Let me give you just one example. Look at this verse with me. It's found in Isaiah 53. The prophet writes, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So as you and I look at the cross today, as we survey it, as we ponder and analyze what's happening, one of the things we cannot say if we look at it biblically is that it was just an unfortunate happening. Jesus just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Circumstances occurred and He died a criminal's death. God never intended for His Son to die that way. Oh no. 
as we look at the cross through the biblical lens, the first thing we have to say is that it was part of God's plan from the foundation of the world. But I want you to put this insight that it was God's plan all along. I want you to put that truth alongside this truth. It's number two in your notes. Jesus' death was not only God's plan from the beginning, but at the same time, it was also the work of wicked men. Let me show you again from the book of Acts. It's another one of the early sermons preached by the apostles. It's starting in chapter 3, verse 12. And following, Peter again says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. You see, Peter and John were heading to the temple, as was their custom. There was a man lame from birth at the gate called Beautiful. They look at him. They don't have any money. But they said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And God miraculously heals this man. And so these people that were around in the temple were amazed by what happened. And they were wondering how it happened. So Peter gives them the answer. Verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant, Jesus. So in other words, Peter's saying, this is the same God that our forefathers worshipped. And now He's done something extraordinary in the name of Jesus because of His crucifixion and glorious resurrection. And it's through the power of Jesus that this man was made to walk. But then Peter goes a little further. I want you to notice what he says here. And continuing that verse, he says, Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And finally, Peter says it very directly. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. So do you see what we're seeing when we begin to survey the cross? When we take more than a quick look? When we get beyond that it's a wonderful symbol and some of you may be wearing it today, that's wonderful. But when we get beyond that, when we really take an in-depth look at what's happening there I want to show you what it's teaching us in a single sentence. And what we're learning is that the cross teaches us both God's sovereignty. In other words, His plans and purposes will be accomplished and human responsibility. Both God's sovereignty and human responsibility live side by side in the Bible. They live side by side in the cross. So when we ask, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? You have to say there's more than one reason. You have to say that there were wicked people. You have to say that Pilate and Herod 
and all the Jewish religious leaders and the crowd that gathered that day and yelled, crucify him. You have to say that they were responsible. Why did they say those things? They were jealous. They were envious. They were threatened by him. The Jews could not see that he could possibly be the Messiah. He didn't fit the mold, the model. They wanted to eliminate him. But yet, at the very same time, at the very same moment, Jesus was going to the cross as part of God's plan. That's why he told Pilate, you have no authority over my life. I lay down my life. It was determined in advance. It was God's will to accomplish His purposes, which was the salvation of His people. Now, can I just say it, it, most of us at some point in our lives, we want to get rid of one of those things, do we not? We either want to get rid of God's sovereignty, or we want to get rid of our human responsibility. Sometimes internally we feel that tension, and there is tension in that, is there not? In those two things? We feel that tension, and we say, well, how can they both be true? But yet the Bible never allows any other thought that they're both true. And sometimes, as we saw here today, in a single set of verses, it marries God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And listen, beloved church, it's only when we hold them together that we really understand life. And we understand our own lives. When we learn to hold on to both of these truths, it teaches us, especially, and don't miss this, especially about the most painful things in our lives. Especially when times when we're suffering especially true in times that are hard. It's true in those dark nights of the soul where we question why and fill in the blank. In those times, holding both of those truths together teaches us the right questions to ask. When you acknowledge that God is sovereign, you say, Lord, what do you want to teach me through my pain? How do you want me to grow? What are your plans, kingdom plans and purposes right now as I go through this and I don't even understand? And then when you acknowledge human responsibility, you can face the fact that maybe suffering, your suffering is because of the wrongdoing or negligence of others. Or it might be a result of your own sin. You see, as we put these two together, as God did at the cross, we can grow in wisdom and maturity. Let's look at number three, the third truth. Jesus' death on the cross. And church, please don't miss this one. It was motivated by God's great love. 
for us. The Bible states that in a variety of places, but nowhere more clearly than 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Look at it with me. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be, and I want you to pay attention to this word, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now I want you to watch this. When we survey the cross, whenever we survey the cross, whenever we focus as the Apostle Paul did on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we should not only see God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but we should see this written in bold letters across the crossbar of the cross, we should see this. God loves us. He loves us. We ought to see that love that He would send His Son to die for the world. Whenever you think about what motivated the cross, it was the love of God. It was His mercy It was His grace. It was His desire to save us. Beloved, if you've had those moments in your life where you've ever wondered, am I loved? Does anybody love me? Does anybody care? Don't go like the words of that old song, looking for love in the wrong places. That's joke number three. You have to look no further than the cross. There has never been an expression of love like that in human history. In those moments, you never have to doubt if someone loves you. But we have to put that truth that the primary motivator for the cross was God's love. We have to put that truth alongside with this truth as well. It's number four. That Jesus' death on the cross was where He took the punishment and absorbed the wrath that was due for the sins of those He came to save. We've already seen that key word here. I mentioned it earlier. Propitiation. It's this multiple, multisyllable word. It's not one we use often. In fact, I I thought if I could spell it in seminary, I'd at least get partial credit. Was was that joke number four or five? Four? Number four? I mean, seriously, right? Who uses that word? And maybe today, if you're new to the Bible and you're new to the church, this word doesn't make much sense to you. But church, I really want you to not leave here today until you have a clear understanding of this word. Because when I give you the definition in a minute, it's going to bless your soul. It appears again in 1 John 2, 2. Let me show you. Beginning in verse 1, he says, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what John is saying is that it's best for all of us if we don't sin. Right? It's best if we obey His commands. 
if we follow His path. But if we do sin, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer who's at the right hand of the Father right now. We have a remedy through Jesus Christ. He speaks to the Father on our behalf. And I want you to look at verse 2, and here's where the Word comes in. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not just for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I want you to check this definition of propitiation out. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. The Bible teaches us that our sins, they're not just mistakes. They're not just errors. They're not just foibles. They're not just a little thing. The Bible says our sins, rightly understood, are because we say this. I want to do it my way. I want to determine what the standards are. I want to be in control. I want to sit on the throne. I want to be the master of my future. Are, are any of you like me? You've applied for the manager of the universe job? I've applied for it. I don't even get a call back these days. I want to be the one who decides what's right and wrong. I want to be the one who determines what the standards are. I will do it my way. Our sin is rebellion against the rule and reign of God. And seeing through that biblical lens, God's holiness and justice requires that our sin be punished. And we should all receive that punishment and wrath because we've rebelled against God. The God who created us. The God who loved us. But church, the Bible t teaches us that when Jesus died on the cross, He absorbed the wrath. He took the punishment that should have been mine. That's propitiation. There'll be a test after the service. For you see, the cross is not only the place where human responsibility meets God's sovereignty, it's also the place where God's love and where His justice meet. Brings me to the next truth. It's number five in your notes. Jesus' death on the cross was in the place of and on behalf of all who repent and believe in Him. This truth is nowhere stated more beautifully than in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 5 in the Old Testament. It says, Isaiah writes, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
By the way, it doesn't say some. All of us have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When theologians read that passage and others with similar focus, they say this, what the Bible is teaching us right here is the principle or the doctrine of substitution. In other words, I should have died for my sin and received the punishment and the wrath that was due. But because of God's great love for us, and because of Jesus' obedience to voluntarily step away from His rightful place in heaven to descend to this sin-broken, twisted world, He voluntarily laid down His life to accomplish God's plan for the salvation of His people. He died in my place, in your place. He died to pay the debt that I couldn't pay and to set me free. No wonder we call it good news. It's good news, is it not, church? No wonder the Apostle Paul decided to know nothing among this church except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what should our response be? Here's the last thing in your notes. When we trust, we should trust in Jesus. And when we do, what God does is imputes or He counts, reckons our sins to Jesus and imputes or counts and reckons Jesus' righteousness to us. Nowhere is this truth better stated than in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, He, who's the He? God. For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that word, propitiation? A sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to our favor for our sake. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you today for your timeless, unchanging, God-breathed word. I thank you that your word speaks to us. It moves throughout our souls, bringing truth and love, and healing, and justice, and reproof, and correction. Father, I ask today that you, as you inspired and directed your servant Paul to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified, Lord, may that become the cry of our heart as well. I pray for every man and woman in this room, every young adult, that they would embrace the cross. To our culture, nothing's changed in 2,000 years. It's still foolishness. It's still moronic. But it's salvation to those who believe. It's the secret wisdom of God. Thank You, Lord, 
for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us. How could we ever thank you? In Jesus' name, amen. So as we get ready to celebrate and do the Lord's Supper together, here's my request as you come and receive the elements in a moment. Uh, Our worship team is just going to play quietly while you take the elements, and I'm going to ask you to go back to your seat, and I'm going to ask you to do this. I believe unless you can see yourself in the crowd that's shrieking, crucify Him. Unless you can see yourself as one who's fallen short, unless you can see yourself that not one has not strayed. Unless you can see yourself before Christ as a sinner separated. What we're celebrating today is that if you're a follower of Him, that He's reconciled you to Himself. But I would ask you to consider those things because Jesus said as often as we do this, do it in remembrance of Him. But it's more than a remembrance today because for those of us that follow Jesus, it's a transformation, is it not? So I'd like you to remember Him I'm going to ask you to visualize that day. Think about when those nails were driven into his hands and feet. And remember that because of his act of obedience, his wrath was turned to our favor. So as they play, come receive the elements, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together in a few moments. I would ask you to take the symbol of his body. If you'd hold it in your hand, please. I'm reminded of what his words, what Jesus' words were that night. When he said, when he broke the bread, he said, you remember those words, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now looking back through the biblical lens and the lens of history, we see that it was God's plan to take that sinless body. And I, church, I, I just have to confess to you, I, I, I can't fathom or really adequately explain this to you except to say that God made that body sin on our behalf for our sake. He said, take and eat. Then he took the cup, the Passover cup, which was to symbolize from the Exodus, right? Passing over the angel of death. He said, this is my blood to pay for all those sins. But what was interesting is that he drank another cup that night that day, the next day, he drank the cup of wrath so we could drink this cup of salvation and cleansing for our sin. Take and drink all of it. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And as 
as we listen to these verses, the first verse really describes beautifully that truth we learned today from the Scripture, how God's love meets God's justice at the cross. The second verse teaches us about propitiation. The sacrifice that bears God's wrath so we can have favor. So let's stand and worship together. And, and accompanying this song in music will be a video. And on the video, you'll see a cross that has charcoal representing our sin. And then a young lady is going to paint that cross, which demonstrates the propitiation for our sin. Let's celebrate the truth of what Christ accomplished on the cross, shall we? Let's worship together. We're really glad, thankful for all of you. Thankful that you were here today to worship with us. My encouragement to you as you leave is, is consider in your own life, because Monday's coming, right? <laughs> to survey the cross, to take a comprehensive look every day. I encourage you to do so. I, I believe that the Lord will provide amazing results in your life as you ponder, analyze, and think about what He's done for us. I'll be here after the service. If there's anything that I can pray with you about, maybe you want extra credit and you can come tell me the definition of propitiation. I'll be glad to give that to you too. But as you go, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may He lift up His countenance to you this day and give you His peace. You're loved. And God bless you today. You're dismissed. <laughs>